I think I'll confine myself to rehearsing just the march part of the litany. Next Monday, Charles Tannenbaum, the New York book collector, will be speaking on relations between collectors and rare book libraries and librarians. And next Thursday, Thomas Adams, the recently retired librarian of the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University, now the John Hay Professor of Bibliography at Brown, will be speaking on his 25 years in that library. There is a mailing out to the friends of the Book Arts Press, which went out this morning, which adds to the lecture series in addition to the Tuesday April 6th, April 5th, 6th lecture uh, that Alex Wilson of the British Library is giving here. Thank you very much, that's right. Uh, in addition to the Tuesday, a April 5th lecture of Alex Wilson at 6 o'clock here, there will be a Monday, April 4th lecture, also at 6, also here, of Michael, by Michael Crump, the assistant editor of the 18th Century Short Title Catalog, entitled The 18th Century Short Title Catalog, Past and Future. And on Wednesday, April 6th, so you won't have to loiter before Thursday, April 7th, when the book fair opens, there is an invitational lecture sponsored by the School of Library Service uh, through the generosity of the ISI, the first what is expected to be an annual occasion, Lazaro Lecture, where uh, Eugene Garfield of ISI will be introducing the speaker, uh, Frederick Kilgore, who will be talking about the future of networking in this country. That will be in Midtown at 5.30 and all friends will receive invitations in the mail, and anyone who is enterprising enough to find out about the lecture otherwise is very welcome to attend. And the usual announcements will, like so many occasions in New York, if you know where the drinks are, they're there for the taking. Uh, the, the lecture comes first, however, and in fact should be worth listening to. There is a remorseless string of lectures in May and June and July, but I think we'll hold on those for the time being in favor of our present one, Mr. John Jolliffe, who will be speaking about cataloging matters and other things, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him here now. Sir. I welcomed the opportunity of preparing this talk before I welcome, time permitting, the opportunity of attempting to crystallize my ideas on some topic been growing in importance in my mind over a period. I'm not a, a sort of performer who dons cap and bells and is happy to give for the 50th time a recitation of the seven ages of librarianship. After suggesting this talk to Terry and then seeing the other speakers he had included in his program, I realized that I might have perhaps better chosen a different topic, another one on which I must soon uh, crystallize some thoughts and that is on certain aspects of book pricing and distribution on the continent of Europe during the 16th century. But I'm afraid you'll have to wait for that one. The conversation I'd had with Terry last fall, which led to the idea of giving the talk, had been on matters uh, nearer the present idea. 
and so I naturally thought of this as being the one he would like me to dilate upon. I must apologise in advance for some comments which may be not generally understood because they involve technicalities of computer processing or of programming. Such comments will, however, tend to reinforce a proposition which has been commonly accepted since the first days of using computers in libraries. Namely, that librarians should know more about computers, not simply from the outside, knowing the uses to which they are put, but from the inside, knowing by using them at a practical level what they are capable of being used for. A very long time ago, I was introduced to a statement by Ada, Lady Lovelace, daughter of the poet Byron, mathematician and supporter of Charles Babbage, the inventor of modern computer programming. Referring to the machine which Babbage was designing and building with government support over about 20 years and without success, she said, it will do whatever we know how to do. Now the meat in this proposition lies in the words, whatever we know how. And I found it to be true in nearly 20 years of work with computers. In this time, I have also met remarkably few librarians who knew either the statement or its truth. I have, however, met many who have worked with computerized library systems who were unaware of this truth and of the obligation it lays on us, not on the machines, for the limitations of the systems which we design and implement. Looking back to the early 1960s, it is possible to discern the simultaneous development of two features, which, especially when they have interacted, have begun to change the practice of libraries. On the one hand, there has been the continuous development of the most sophisticated and flexible instrument ever designed by the mind of man, the computer. And on the other, there has been the introduction into library practice of ever more restrictive codes and ever less flexible standards. This is ironic. A further irony is that in recent years, it has sometimes been said in justification of a new restriction, but this is because of the requirements of the computer. I will put forward a thesis, which you may be relieved to hear, I will not attempt to justify word by word, but the thinking behind the use of computers in libraries is out of date, and possibly has always been so and that the opportunities for newer modes of thought and newer methods offered by technological advances have largely been ignored. It would be possible to argue, as some computer specialists are now arguing, that by 1965, the computer structures, based on the von Neumann logic of the 1940s and on the limitation proposed by the earliest component of computers, were out of date. I shall return to this briefly later on. For the moment, I want to remain with library system designers rather than computer designers. My first contact with computers was in 1964. At that time, I was working in the library of the British Museum. And the head of the library, Robert Wilson, had been asked by Sir Frank Francis, who was then the director of the museum, what are you doing about this new idea of using computers in libraries? So I was given the fourth refusal of the question, would you like to find out about this idea of using the 
I said, yes, and the story should go. I have never looked back. In the following year, together with a colleague from the library, I came to the United States for the first time, and for a period of three weeks, the two of us were in almost daily contact with those in the Library of Congress who were planning the MARP project. I do have a longish memory, so I hope I'm not yet possible. In those days, Snyder was not Henry and EST North America, but Sam and the LC Systems Office. He was Mrs. Abrams' colleague and superior. What has been fossilized from that time is Mark itself. Then they were planning an experimental distribution of cataloging data on magnetic tape to, I seem to remember, only 14 libraries, for a limited period of time, perhaps six months. The inevitable happened. Those first thoughts, subject in principle to revision and improvement in the light of experience, are still with us. The libraries participating in the experiment, which had invested so much effort in programming, which had altered their systems to depend on the continued availability of cataloging in the experimental form, were naturally reluctant to encourage any radical modification of the marked structure. In consequence, the experimental nature of the Mark I project really did not um, come to any conclusion. Certain features which even in that design phase in 1965 were acknowledged to be weaknesses, are still with us. Effort was concentrated on modern books, indeed on modern books in English, and all the arguments of myself and my colleague for a wider specification within which our problems at the museum of books in all dates and all languages might be accommodated were listened to, but set aside in favor of the experimental format and the coding onto which later necessary to graft, and not always easily, further features to accommodate non-English and non-modern books. Not all the necessary features have yet been added. At that time, generality was applied to the mark record itself. It was to be independent of the medium of transmission, and so it received the character string format, even for numerical references within the record, is still a feature of the international standard, though to the best of my knowledge, no one ever wished to transmit mark records over telegraph lines to teleprinting equipment. Another relic of this early preoccupation with, in effect, validation, is the occurrence of field terminator characters, as well as machine-generated pointers to fields, which give the length including the terminator. Thus, to get the data from field, one has to start by subtracting one from the length. Belt and braces, indeed. Both supplied by machine. And how did this happen? The logic of circumstance and the logic of need only partly accounted for it. One must remember that in those early days, the only solid input from the library side was from Mrs. Markson. Perhaps I can depart a small anecdote about this Markson here, um, which is not intended to uh, disparage her. During that three weeks we were in uh, Washington, they met um, an organization called COLA. I don't know if it still exists. It's
it stood for Committee on Library Automation. And it apparently started as being a talking group in the corridors and bars of ALA. Um, being those people who were already starting to try to use computers in libraries. By the time we met it, it had become a little more formalised. It had a chairman, though it did not yet have um, an agenda and minutes. And we were asked if we would like to uh, sit in as observers, which we did. And then one evening, Mrs. Martin uh, provided entertainment at home for uh, all the group when we arrived, she met us by saying, well, after the meal, uh, you and Sandy Kane uh, can tell us about your plans for the British Museum. We were saved from this, uh, in effect, by the fact that what was served as wine with the meal was sherry. And Sandy Kane and I, finding it sherry, uh, took it very slowly. Others drank it as if it was Algerian plop. And <laughs> after dinner, when we came to give our talk, um, I think we were probably the only two that would think we were still awake. Now, as I say, in those days, there was only Mrs. Markson, who was uh, from the library side. And the dominant people had come from computing. And as far as I remember, computing was a very strange form uh, in code breaking here and there. And they tended to bring with them some of their previous experience, but they also saw the library world in concrete terms. And what they saw was the most obvious manifestation of library information was, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, the 5 by 3 card. Cards were still in vogue in computer systems. You've only to look at early film, early films, films of the 1960s to see that whenever a computer or retrieval system has to be demonstrated, what you actually see is a punch card, a collating machine, uh, from which someone draws the one card which will indicate whatever it is. In those days, the terminal as an input device did not exist. Key to magnetic medium devices for offline data capture were in their infancy. And since they'd been manufactured by the typewriter division of IBM, they were naturally incompatible with the computer division of IBM, which caused so much difficulty in there. The punch card was almost everywhere dominant. And so it was natural, first, to think in fixed field ways. And the leader of the mark record is still a punch card. It was natural also in those days to think of asking library staff to prepare their records for the machine in block capitals on 80-column wide coding sheets. IBM had not yet admitted the possibility of lowercase letters and never has adopted the international character set standard which is built around the common alphabet. But the library card gave the model for the order of presentation and tagging of data elements and accounts for the curious continuing presence of both fields and subfields in the record, which actually requires two modes of access within the same record to certain data elements. You use a pointer to find the field, and then you have to do a character-by-character -character search through the field to find the subfield. Why not do one or the other? 
why do both? The mark record contains these subfields because on certain lines on the card you will have, for example, an imprint. And very little is. It's place publish date, card size. So the line is a field, and but nevertheless we want to get these individual things, so we chop it up within the line. Uh, the notion of having several fields on the same line uh, was impossible of conception. The mark record is not totally unchanged since the beginning. The separation of the data from the pointers, so that the pointers refer to the area of the data only and not to an area relative to the start of the record, is a modification which was intended to permit changes of the record by addition or deletion of data without the necessity of changing all the addresses in all the pointers. But the pointers still appear in numerically ascending order of tag, but this is no, there is no necessity for this. And in spite of the generality of the pointer system, the data fields are also concatenated in tag order. Even where it is possible, no two pointers point to the same data. On the type card, if London is needed twice, it is typed twice. This is in two different places. In the marked record, it would be perfectly simple to have two pointers pointing to the one word, London. For some data elements, there is still no provision. For example, bibliographical format, bibliographical collation, a reference to a bibliography in view of a standard book number, for example, a reference to SDC, but here I start to tread on different ground. It might be unreasonable to expect Mark to provide for elements absent from AACR. Just as it may be unreasonable to expect Mark not to include elements in AACR for which there is no logical justification when applied to certain kinds of book, kinds of copy, for example. But before coming to AACR, a brief diversion into the ISBB and the ISBN. I remember the time when the ISBD was no more than a gleam in Michael Coleman's eye. I remember why it was proposed. The notion was that with the growth of mark-based national bibliographic centers, it would be advantageous if bibliographic records from countries which had a national bibliography but did not yet produce mark records on magnetic tape their records could be put in such a form that they could be typed into the computer in the more advanced countries and put through a single program called an automatic format recognition program which would turn the records into fully tagged and structured marked records. The idea was not absurd. The implementation has been. Basically, only those advanced countries which produce their national cataloging in marked form have adopted the ISPD. This is still not quite absurd. What is absurd is that those countries which, because they have their records in machinery or form, could print them out in any way they wanted, backwards, putting God Save the Queen, 12 asterisks, or the text of the Gettysburg Address, if they so wished, as the punctuation between title and imprint. They have adopted the barbarous and illiterate punctuation of the ISBD. Because they do not realize the real independence of the input record, the 
processing record and the output record. The intended input record has become the normal output record. Not a great amount of straight thinking there. The ISBD also illustrates another feature of some recent progress towards standardization. The tendency for one standard to prejudge an issue not its yet itself standardized. In this case, the ISBD depends essentially on the acceptance of AACR as an international cataloging standard. Put another way, this means if you don't like AACR, then you won't want the ISBD. Another example of this sort of prejudicing of issues, perhaps a little clouded by real international politics, comes from the potentially unexciting field of character sets for bibliographic use. There is an international standard for the Roman alphabet, and the characters such as numerals and punctuation commonly used with it. This standard is virtually identical with the American ASCII code. No one has ever asked, no one has ever thought uh, another order would be possible, but no one has ever asked why the letters in this code are in alphabetical order. They are. It seemed a reasonable way to do it. In both these codes, the numerical values assigned to letters are in two blocks, one for uppercase letters and the other with higher numbers for lowercase letters. No one ever thought why you should do this in that particular order, but it was done. A random choice, if you like. Within each block, the normal alphabetical order is followed with each number one greater than its predecessor. Thus, capital A has the value 65, capital B 66, and so on, while the lowercase a has 97, lowercase b 98, and so on. This makes sorting of English and most Western European languages quite straightforward. Not all Spanish, Welsh, Danish, um, and other small countries of that sort um, cause some difficulty. A considerable amount of work has been done over the years to provide additional standard sets for other groups of characters, Greek alphabet, for instance, a further Roman set containing common accents and characters such as the AE and OE digraphs. One proposal came forward at the International Standards Organization for an extended Cyrillic character set. Now, the Cyrillic alphabet presents a problem. It has more characters than the Roman alphabet, so that it is difficult to squeeze it into a set of numbers of the same size. In addition, there are in use in Bulgarian, Macedonian, Serbo-Croat, some characters which do not appear in the Cyrillic alphabet used in Russia. There is also the need to provide for a certain number of characters in the Cyrillic alphabet, which were discontinued after the revolution, but which still appear in 19th century Russian book titles. The extended set was intended to include these additional characters for Bulgarian, Macedonian, old um, pre-revolutionary Cyrillic, and not the characters which the Russians use when writing in Cyrillic the non-Slavonic languages of Soviet Asia, and a further set would be necessary for that in due course. Now this character set had been prepared by the Russians and was based on their own domestic standard, called GOST. Um, GOST is the name of their standards organization. 
the International Standards Organization accepted it on the nod, and it was circulated to national standards organizations for voting. The ISO has a democratic structure. Majority voting counts. Indonesia and Thailand together can nullify the United Kingdom and the United States. For some reason, best known in Library of Congress, the United States representatives of ISO acquiesced in this procedure. Since it was in the euphoric phase just after the Helsinki Agreement, perhaps no one wanted to be beastly to the Russians. The voting was interesting. Of the 60 or so national organizations who voted, only one neg negative vote was recorded. That I am proud to say of the British. We voted against it on these grounds. First, that it claimed to be an extension of a set which had not itself been circulated as a standard. Second, that the block of numbers assigned to lowercase letters was lower than that assigned to uppercase letters, thereby reversing the procedure in all previous sets. And thirdly, that the alphabetical order normally assigned to the letters in Cyrillic alphabet could not be followed. Now, since we had the last two of these objections also to the parent ghost set, we did not wish to let this slide into our acceptance undebated, because then the parent set would have had to go through on the nod because the extended set had already been um, accepted. Now, the committee of which I'm chairman has been subjected to considerable pressure by the standardization bureaucracy to change our vote for the sake of international agreement and harmony and solidarity. Only one of the bureaucrats we have dealt with has given any weight to our intellectual arguments. We are, nevertheless, going ahead with the production of a British standard for Russian Cyrillic, which we shall propose to ISO as a model. A last word on this to illustrate part of the problem. The first three characters of the Cyrillic alphabet are, as it were, A, B, and V. B doesn't look like anything, but A and V look like A and B. The Goss standard assimilates, where possible, Cyrillic letters to the values given to similar shapes in the Roman alphabet. Thus, 65 goes to their A, 66 to V, because it looks like B, and B, their B, to a much higher value, because at that stage, um, something like Q, for which there's no equivalent. Thus, sorting is no longer simple. The sorting order values, alphabetical order, differ from the numerical code values. And in objecting, we are trying to ensure that in England, anyway, libraries don't have to go off into another sorting procedure when they hit Cyrillic. Another standard, which has had much more acceptance, certainly in Britain, is the International Standard Book Number. Now, although the spelling mistake was not an invention of the early printers, it seems reasonable to say that they and their successors have institutionalized it and disseminated it in a way that the medieval scribes and their predecessors could not have hoped to emulate. Now, the designers of the standard book number did have error and its avoidance in their minds. Why else did they produce the elaborate means of supplying the check digit at the end? Yet, 
they seem to have had total confidence in printers. Any bibliographer could have warned of the practices which were likely to arise in the use of the standard book number. Indeed, any bibliographer might have addressed the problem, what is the standard book number? This is not just an exercise in philosophy. I would expect most librarians to say that the standard book number is a number printed in the book which is a unique identifier for the edition of which that book forms part. Now, please don't question it. Now, the standing book, standard book number in London, and the producers of British National Bibliography as well, hold that the standard book number is a number assigned to an edition, whether printed in it or not, and regardless of any apparent standard book number differing from the assigned number, which is actually printed in the book. From this conflict of definitions, and from certain publishing practices, for instance, perhaps a sensible one of providing a different standard book number for a hard book, hard copy, a hardback and paperback edition, and the less sensible one of sometimes providing the same standard book number for all four volumes of four volume works, sometimes insisting on providing four different numbers, sometimes providing a new standard book number revised edition, sometimes sticking to the old number, sometimes even using a standard book number for a new work, because the work to which it was actually signed is out of print, and therefore the number becomes available. But all these things exist, and these are publishing practice. But of course the printer has the last laugh. We try to urge to have an indicator, and there's provision for indicators in the market, an indicator against the standard number, which would show whether it was actually present in the book, or perhaps a range of indicators. One to show that the standard book number was printed on the back of the title page where one expects to find it, one to say it's on the dust jacket only, and a third one to say this is a number that's been signed by the agency here in the book but it's not even quite as simple as that. I, um, I have on my shelves two OUP books in which I can see the standard book number, but the standard book number in normal form is nowhere printed in it. And what OUP have done there is take the numeration part of the standard book number, leaving off the check digit, leaving off their own prefix, and use that number uh, in the signatures. Now, is the standard book number in that book or not? Um, as I say, we, we, it's the sort of question that a bibliologist could reasonably address. We also urge them, as part of descriptive cataloging, to record as a standard book number what the printer had actually printed, regardless of any inherent errors. This latter they now do, though this caused them a certain amount of difficulty. At one stage we wanted to test their card service, and we took two mark tapes a month apart. And by applying um, a randomizing procedure to it, we printed out from these uh, two mark tapes 200 standard book numbers. 
from each. And we printed them out on the teletype. And we simply tore the paper, uh, paper off the teletype and were covering letters saying, please supply these cards, sent it off to the British National Bibliography. In each case, we had a letter back accompanying 198 cards saying, um, please check at the other two. Untouched by human hand. Uh, at no stage had we transcribed what was on the marked tape. It was conceivable there was an error in the teleprinter, but it didn't seem very likely. And being reasonably well placed in Bodley with, um, with the bulk of the British publications coming into the library, we shot it off and looked at the books themselves. And sure enough, what was on the teleprinter what indeed was on the mark record was what was on the book. And it was true, the check they did didn't check. So although they had forced these things some way, somehow through their validation procedure, to get the record sitting on the file, it was not possible similarly to force through the validation procedure any string which would actually match it, from which I concluded that perhaps 1% of the mark records were never going to be available to anyone. Now, ASCR is currently undergoing revision. What number will emerge is hard to say. A series whose first two terms are 67 and 2 can have almost any number as its third term. After the fuss about the cost of change from 67 to 2, one is surprised to find that undaunted, they're still working towards perfection. One of the more honourable scars I bear comes from a rebuke by John Rather for saying, that the base of all cataloging systems is economic. I meant that cataloging systems were a compromise between what the library can invest in terms of labor for creation and maintenance of catalogs and the utility of the catalog to the user of the library. He objected to the notion that cataloging rules were anything other than some branch of philosophy, or was it theology? Certainly his party are in control even though they shift their ground over the years. AACR2 abandoned one of the tenets of the Paris Conference on Cataloging Principles, one of the few tenets which I thought was actually an advance on Panizzi, namely that all the works of an author, whether under whatever name they might be published, should be brought together under a single heading. Not anymore. The title page has become dominant, and the cataloger, one assumes, is less and less expected to read the work, more and more to look at it and describe what he sees. Now, valuable as objectivity may be, this seems to me a negation of what people can do better than machines. Soon after that first trip to the United States, in 1966, my colleague and I gave a series of talks to our, our colleagues at the museum about computers and how they might be used in libraries and especially how they might be used in the British Museum Library. 
it was a disastrous exercise in public relations. We were abused for selling out, for abandoning scholarship and scholarly preoccupations. We were also asked what we saw as the role of people in our machine-ruled utopia. We replied that the object of using computers was to get librarians back on the reference desk, where their ability to read, remember and associate would be unchallenged by machine, and away from repetitious and mechanical transcription and recording which were properly the province machines. This prospect did not go down well with the catalogue either. <laughs> I still think this is right, and I think it is sad that progress ISPD, Mark, and AACR have been going determinedly in the opposite direction. There is a basic question about cataloging, which has been asked more and more over the past decade, and partly, uh, I'm glad to say, under economic pressure, and to which no reply has yet been given, which justifies our present standard practice. What is the function of the catalogue? The question is fogged by the assumption on the part of the providers of cataloguing that they therefore know about catalogues. It used to be said, in contrasting the cataloguing practice of the British National Bibliography and the British Museum, that the former, working without books for comparison or files to maintain, catalogued each book as though it was the only book in the world, but the latter catalogued each book in relation to all the other books that had ever existed, whether it possessed them or not. Now, both positions are a little extreme, and both, it could be said, fail to afford any primacy of interest to the non-librarian user. Unlike Panizzi, whose resolution of difficult cataloguing decisions was generally achieved by evoking a pragmatic utility to the user, which is why catalogers find that it's so difficult to work with, there doesn't seem to be any theory behind it. Um, one of the examples there is the heading which is now abandoned called Periodical Publications, which Panizzi uh, had. And Panizzi said, well, you, you treat institutions as authors, so that if you have a periodical published by an institution, then you put it under the heading appropriate to the institution. But then you'll come across periodicals which don't appear to have authors. Um, the New York Times or something like that. So what do you do with those? Well, you could scatter them throughout the catalogue by title. But he said it would be simpler to bring them together in one place so that there were a large chunk called periodical publications where you would have not merely those periodical publications without authors, but also references to those which did have authors. This was not really good enough. But it actually worked. And for certain types of bibliographic inquiry, which had certainly not been foreseen by Panizzi, for example, the early bibliography of Norway or Copenhagen or Denmark, by looking up the heading uh, periodical publications of Christiania, you'll find all the early publications in, uh, of Norway. I'm afraid reason had to prevail, and um, it's now not possible to discover in a single place the range of periodicals which the British Library has. 
Anyway, the catalogue. One of the functions of the catalogue, in most libraries, is to put the user in contact with a book. Several people have advanced the notion that if this is the prime function, then it can be performed with less cataloging detail than we customarily and standardly provide, but this say with short records. Peter Lewis, the director of the British Library's Bibliographic Services Division, which produces the British National Bibliography, is now veering in this direction, though not yet on paper. Farewell logical and philosophical purity. He now finds that it is impossible to contemplate a reduction from the 17 weeks average which elapsed between the publication of a British work and the provision of the full mark record. So he's testing out the idea that he can improve currency if he can persuade libraries that all they really need is information of the sort and quantity which appear in the cataloging and publication data. That plainly is available at the time the book is published. I don't think he's yet seen that if that is so, there's no need for a BNB at all, because every library buying a book will have the cataloging there. But if such a notion were to be both true and accepted, then the kind of cost comparisons which have led to the widespread acceptance of OCLC might prove to be the wrong ones, because it might still be cheaper for libraries not to look up OCLC record, but simply to copy the CIP data or the library conference data uh, from the books that they have before and use lower paid, less trained staff to do it. There may be other indicators in this direction. One of the aims of designers of large central computer systems has always been the minimization of storage. Despite of the fact, clearly demonstrable at every stage over the past 15 years, that the unit cost of mass storage in computers is falling and will continue to fall in real terms. To the point now where I can buy a single hard disk to be driven by a microprocessor costing less than $100,000, which is capable of holding a million copy and catalogue records. Of course, we already have short records. This may point to a division of function at our present catalogues. In-house short record finding lists and bibliographical databases available on such commercial uh, services as Lockheed, just like the abstracting services. You pay more for that. There are other pointers still to different ways of using electronic hardware. There is now available a free text searching engine using, at a key point, decidedly non-from Neumann logic. And into this, you can simply type catalogue records, whole text books if you wish, and Google search uh, on strings. You would be able to type in a, a mark record tags at all, and search on it as efficiently as typing in just the data. 
there now exist browser terminals without keyboards. So people touch the screen. Their users can be guided and can guide themselves through catalog searches. And there is much talk on the margins of that branch of study known as artificial intelligence of expert systems. Of expert systems in which the expertise of a practitioner in the field, such as medical or geological diagnosis, is put into question and answer for. It seems to me only a matter of time before someone tries to replace the reference desk personnel by their own encapsulated expertise. And I shudder to think where the place of libraries. 